You are listening to the UFO Talker Podcast. Come with us as we explore UFOs from the past and the present. With insightful discussions, interviews, and reviews, we will add our voice to the mysteries that have been seen in our skies and oceans for all of human history. Now, here's our host, Michael Ryan. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 25, coming to you from Studio 7H here in Ontario, Canada. On today's episode, I have an interview with author Paul Schotkin, who has written a biography of uh, Townsend Brown called The Man Who Mastered Gravity. So I have been interested in Townsend Brown probably since the 80s, and he's one of those scientists, kind of like Tesla. So uh, nowadays, Tesla it seems like everyone knows Tesla. But back then, no one knew these guys. They were very, very obscure. And Townsend Brown, he has, boy, it's uh, just beyond interesting. And as you'll find out from the interview, he was involved with Sir William Stevenson. There was espionage. Did he invent anti-gravity propulsion? Oh, just it's on and on and on. It's, a, it's one of those mysteries, and, you know, everybody loves a mystery, right? And then today's audio excerpt, it is taken from Paul's book, The Man Who Mastered Gravity, and that will be at the end of the show. And then right now I want to talk a little bit about a video that got released on YouTube, I think about a week ago, something like that. And it was uh, MP Larry Maguire, who is a member of Parliament for Canada from Manitoba. And last year there was an event that was held between November 17th and the 18th in 2023. And it was put on by the Saul Foundation, which, if you haven't heard about them, is a foundation, the premier center for UAP research. And they say they have a lot of academic and government experts and this particular show that was put on, it was called An Initiative for UAP Research and Policy. And it was put on by Dr. Gary Noland. And they are slowly releasing videos of things that happened at the conference. There was a lot of interesting people spoke there. But uh, MP Larry McGuire, he spoke there. And he spoke on the Canadian government's stand on UAP and I watched it. It was interesting. I don't think there was anything particularly new came out. But you have to take your hat off to Larry McGuire. He's one of the very, very few people in the Canadian government, uh, elected officials, that actually even brings this topic up. So I definitely applaud his efforts. And I will put a link to his speech in my show notes. And now I'm going to give my weekly shout out to a city, a small town or city that where I have listeners that listen to UFO Talker. And this week it is Covington, Georgia, which has a population of 14,192 people. And that is located about 35 miles, a little bit southeast of Atlanta, Georgia. And once again, it's... Um, you know, a very lively little town. Everything looks, uh, you know, refurbished and new. Nothing looks like it's falling down or or the city is in uh, troubled times or anything like that. And it has the, the big old southern courthouse like we mentioned in the last city we, we took a look at. 
There is one different thing about Covington, Georgia, that I found out is there is tons and tons of movies and TV shows are shot there. Like literally way too many for me to mention. I think there's, you know, like 140 have been shot there over the years. Um, one of the biggest TV shows was the Dukes of Hazard, So they shot a lot of exterior scenes in Covington, uh, Georgia. And so they don't really have any anything in the way of an interesting movie theater. I think they have one of those multiplex uh venues but those don't interest me as much for some reason (laughs) they just you know built 20 years ago or 30 years ago and they all look the same kind of a cookie cutter but um they do have a lot of bakeries and the one that caught my eye was the bread and butter bakery which is on the uh, corner near the courthouse and it's got a nice storefront and it's got one of those great old neon signs that says coffee and it's hanging from the building. So that would have caught my attention anyways, just walking down the street. But it looks like a great place. And also a great place to eat, I would pick the Mystic Grill, which looks like it has really great burgers. And also it has a great interior, a lot of lots of woodwork. And um, they've lined a lot of the walls with wooden doors. Not really sure why exactly, but it looks very interesting. So that's my shout out to Covington, Georgia and the listeners I have there. And I would like to hear from my listeners in Covington, Georgia or anywhere else. And right about now, it'd be nice to be somewhere warm. (laughs) That would be, that's where I'd like to be right now. It's the part of the winter where if you live in a, uh, you know, in Canada or Northern U.S. or anywhere in the world where it's colder it's the part of the year where you're kind of getting sick of the cold and the snow although we haven't really had much snow uh where i live which is just a little bit east of toronto but uh yeah definitely dreaming of warmer climates and we'll be right back after this message the date was december 30th 1966 it was a clear moonlit night as Canadian Pacific Flight 421 flew at 31,000 feet through the inky darkness just off the Peruvian coast. The DC-8 was on its way to Mexico City. Captain Robert Milbank had put the aircraft on autopilot. Co-pilot J.D. Dahl looked down at his watch. It was 3 a.m. Most of the passengers were asleep. It was very quiet on the aircraft. He was thinking about the great time he and his wife had at their home in White Rock, British Columbia last New Year's Eve. Captain Milbank, who had been looking at something off the left side, asked Dahl to take a look at this. The pilot and co-pilot could see two extremely bright white lights. Within a minute, the two white lights seemed to be moving towards their aircraft. Finally, the object placed itself off their left wing and paced their DC-8. Co-pilot J.D. Dahl thought the object was roughly the same size as their DC-8 and about 500 feet away. They could see a row of dimmer, yellow-white lights between the two white lights. They called for other crew members to take a look. Some thought they could make out the shape of a craft like a saucer shape. After seven minutes, The lights moved towards the tail of the DC-8, and finally the object took off at tremendous speed. When asked about the sighting later, Captain Robert Milbank said, 
I must say that in my 26 years of flying, including wartime, I have never seen anything like this before, and I'm convinced that UFOs are not a dream in somebody's head. What did the crew of Flight 421 see in the early morning hours of December 30, 1966? In his final report, co-pilot J.D. Dahl said, I was a non-believer before, but I was satisfied that we'd been intercepted by something not of this earth, and I've been in the interception business for four years. My next guest is Paul Schatzkin. Paul has been described as a visionary, gadfly, serial entrepreneur, author, guitarist, and songwriter. He has spent the first two decades of the 21st century researching and writing two biographies, one on Philo T. Farnsworth called The Boy Who Invented Television, and the one that we're going to talk about today, a biography of Thomas Townsend Brown called The Man Who Mastered Gravity. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. I appreciate the interest. I know this. I think as we mentioned in a, in a prior conversation to what we're doing today is I have been interested in Townsend Brown since the 80s. Just a totally fascinating person. And your book is fascinating. I loved reading it. For our listeners, is a few episodes ago, Christine Scott, who does book reviews on the podcast, and she reviewed your book, and it got five out of five discs, as she calls it. So <laughs> it was well-received. But I guess my the first question is, for some of our listeners, is could you briefly tell who was Townsend Brown? All right, I'll, I'll do the best I can to summarize it as succinctly as I can. Um, I'm going to make an obscure reference here to start because I was thinking about this last night and it's still fresh in my mind. Back in the 90s and in, in uh, late 90s, early aughts, I worked with a songwriter named Kevin Welch. And Kevin has a song called Life Down Here on Earth. And the, the last verse goes, uh, there will be two dates on your tombstone and everyone will see them. But the only thing that matters is the little dash between them. <laughs> yes, and when we yeah. and when we talk about Townsend Brown, we know that he was born in 1905 and that he died in 1985, but the little dash is a rabbit hole of mysteries. He he was born in Zanesville, Ohio to a very prominent family there that expected that he would be the heir to the family fortune and the family businesses. But very early on, he showed a uncanny knack for electrical science. He was building his own radios e even before radio was a, was a common appliance. And that led him on the path that we are trying to follow now. Um, when I have general conversations about this subject, I will often begin by asking the Inquisitor, a question. Have you ever heard of the Ionic Breeze air purifier? Yes. Okay. Yes. So the Ionic Breeze air purifier was a device that was on the market, I think, in the late eight, late 90s, early aughts, somewhere in that period, marketed by the, the sharper image. It was essentially an air purifier that that had no moving parts. It was electrokinetically propelled. And it was based on an anomalous electrical effect that Townsend Brown discovered when he was a teenager in the early 1920s. 
And I'm going to pause there for a second. I'm not pausing the, the, the recording, but I'm going to just take a, a tangent here. One of the things that's intriguing to me about the two stories that I've written about is that we're talking about people that were born after 1905. And that is after Einstein turned the world on its ear and they grew up in a world that had never not known quantum mechanics and relativity. So they approach these sciences with a very different paradigm than their 19th century predecessors. So what Brown discovered in 1923 or thereabouts, uh, which then morphed over several decades later into the ionic breeze purifier, is an anomalous electrical effect. It bears the name Byfield-Brown effect now. But that anomalous electrical effect when applied in a different manner, slightly different manner, and with different materials, has created a legend that it is able to produce synthetic gravitational fields, which can act in opposition to the Earth's gravitational field, and produce what is commonly referred to as an anti-gravity effect. So that's how Brown earns his notoriety. Is, is as somebody who created an anti-gravity effect that was so controversial that it was completely taken off the record and only developed in a highly classified manner. So um, that, that is part of why we are talking about Townsend Brown these days because uh, of his uh, having, create, having found this anomalous electrical effect and, and the other part of the story is that because we're talking about generating artificial gravitational fields using electrical currents, we are essentially achieving in a physical way what Einstein spent the last years of his life trying to prove theoretically, which is the unified field theory where uh, electricity and gravity or electromagnetism and gravity work the same way that electricity and magnetism work, that they have a, a symbiotic relationship. So that's, that's the thumbnail sketch. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I've, I've done a good enough job there of explaining Brown's origins. We could go into those details, but I don't know, they're, don't know that they're as important as why he is the controversial figure that he is today. And that stems from his having discovered this anomalous electrical effect, which some people think is effectively an anti-gravity effect. So why did you pick Townsend Brown to write a biography on like what interested you like what compelled you to to pick him as to do a biography on I'm gonna have to answer your question by saying I don't know that I picked it so much as somebody out there picked me <laughs> and 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 so the better question is why me um so we're going back now to the summer of 2002 now, you mentioned earlier, and I won't dwell on it if you don't want to, but the, the first book that I wrote was this biography of Philo T. Farnsworth, who, in fact, created the technology uh, on which every video screen on the planet can trace its origins. So he invented television, and, and it is the most, the most ubiquitous appliance in the history of appliances, but nobody's ever heard his name. 
So I have been interested in Farnsworth since the mid-1970s when I first learned of him, and, and how I got drawn into that one is a story in its own right. But finally, in 2000 to 2002, uh, I, had, I had an opportunity to compile the research that I had done starting in the 1970s into a book of my own, a biography of Philo Farnsworth. And I will also add that much of my interest in that story stems from what I learned about him, I think, in the summer of 1973, which was that in the latter years of his life, he was developing a nuclear fusion process. Wow. And I was, I was always very intrigued by that. And I think there's a story there that he discovered things in the course of the work that he was doing on television in the 1920s and 30s that led him eventually to that nuclear fusion process. And that also reinforces what I'm thinking about how people born after 1905 operated in a different paradigm. And he was working with a different foundation of scientific knowledge that led him to this fusion process. However, to come back to Brown. So in the summer of 2002, uh, I am putting the finishing touches on this biography of Philo Farnsworth and thinking now I, I had sold a business a couple of years earlier and I'm looking for what am I going to do next and I'm writing this biography of Philo Farnsworth and thinking, okay, my next career, I will be a biographer of obscure 20th century scientists. Who will I do next? <laughs> you picked a good one. <laughs> well, I had no idea until, and here's where I say somebody picked me because I got in July of 2002, I got an email out of the blue, which is cited in the book, that says uh, it was, the subject header was uh, on inventors. And it simply says, look up Townsend Brown, T. Townsend Brown. He was another one whose work was uh, swept under the rug. And even though physical law said that what he was doing was impossible, the work was classified. And, and then went on to say that uh, you can see the evidence of his work in a blue haze flying over the desert in Nevada or in the ionic breeze air purifier that the Sharper Image promoted. So that was my introduction. I had not heard of Townsend Brown until that evening in July of 2002, but I was primed because I was looking for another subject to write a book about. Mm. And, and um, I took the bait and, and did some research and went online. I found the Townsend Brown family website that had been set up by a friend of the family who was close to Brown's daughter. And uh, over, over a period of several months, um, got to meet Brown's daughter. Uh, I was introduced to her and, and we met in Las Vegas in 19, I'm sorry, in 20, the spring of 2003, we formed a collabor we drew up a collaboration agreement and then she started opening up the family archives. So the answer to your question, why did I pick Townsend Brown? I think is the wrong question. I think the question is why did they pick me? Hmm. <laughs> so something you've brought up uh, just briefly now is so Linda Brown, his daughter, is uh, very important in your book, mm -hmm. and you've mentioned how how you met her. But uh, maybe if you could talk a little bit more about that relationship that you've had with her. Well, Linda was born in 1945. 
and um, worked very closely with her father in some of the things that she was do that he was doing on the surface. Now, I think there are multiple dimensions or layers to Townsend Brown's life, work, and career. And, and there were things that he was doing on the surface that Linda was very involved in. Um, I was introduced to her. We began an email correspondence in the fall of 2002. Or actually, I'm sorry, it was actually a snail mail correspondence. We were writing, I was writing letters and printing them on my computer and sending them to her. And I, and I think she was doing the same, although she didn't have the, uh, um, the adeptness with computers that I have, but we were, we were exchanging actual physical letters with each other and were able to establish a kind of rapport with each other. And I expressed some things about what I would be looking for in the story, that, I, that the questions were as important to me as whatever answers we might find. She was reluctant at first because, because, her experience was uh, of her father is so controversial, and and but I was able somehow to gain her confidence to the point where, I, as I say, we drew up a collaboration agreement where she would begin sharing with me the family archives, and we met for the first time in a hotel room in Las Vegas in I believe April of 2003, and she brought with her from her home where she was living at the time in the high desert of Southern California, she brought with her a couple of large Rubbermaid tubs that had whatever she had left of the family archives, and we just started digging in. So you have, you have seen basically what remains of his written work. Mm-hmm. I have. There is not a lot. Um, there were several notebooks and, and actually, I think somebody got their hands. There were three handwritten notebooks, and, and they actually play a fairly prominent role in the narrative as it unfolds in, in the book because he starts keeping these journals. He stops for a while. There's like nine years. Was it six or nine years where he says no notes were taken? And, and yet when the notebooks are retrieved, there's like six of them. And and we have three, and we don't know where the other three went. Hmm. Yeah. There's actually a lot in the book that surprised me, and I, you know, you you think you always think you know everything about a topic, and then you find out. Uh, and for me, almost every day, no, you don't. <laughs> but <laughs> all right, <laughs> there was there's a lot of things that really surprised me, and one of them was uh, Townsend Brown's friendship with the World War II spy master, uh, William Stevenson. Mm -hmm. And could you tell, or could you talk about th their relationship and, and how they met? Yeah, here is where we get into a, a very interesting realm of synchronicity. And because I have been re recently reading the audiobook version of The Boy Who Invented Television, I have revisited this material about the Radio Corporation of America and RCA Victor, which is pertinent here because uh, Stevenson enters the picture as a colleague of a man named Eldridge Reeves Johnson, who was the founder of the Victor Talking Machines Company. And that company was sold to the Radio Corporation of America, which is a prominent player in the emergence of television later. 
uh, uh, RCA acquires the Victor Talking Machines Company and becomes R RCA Victor. So Johnson was a, a tinkerer, an engineer, and, and later an industrialist. And because I have a background in the music industry, I find it fascinating that he was actually the creator of what we would think of as the modern music industry. He worked with a man named Emil Berliner, who invented the gramophone. Prior to the gramophone, the only sound recording technology that exists was Edison's phonograph, which used the cylinder to record and playback recorded audio. And uh, Berliner is the one who introduced the flat disc gramophone. And he brought his invention to this engineer named Eldred Reeves Johnson because he needed a mechanism that would make the, the turntable spin at a constant speed. And Johnson was the guy who came up with that technology. And later, now that he's in partnership with, with Berliner and they're starting to manufacture Victrolas, uh, uh, gramophones, he came up with the model of of the master and slave reproduction method. Now I realize I've just uh, gone off uh, PC because I, I used the S word there. Um, but that was the model by which a recorded master was made. The master was used to generate what we call the slaves, and those were used to make the production items of the recordings. Mm -hmm. And that is the model that the record industry used for decades. And that was created by this man named Eldred Reeves Johnson. And that made him a very wealthy industrialist. So at the same time, there's a man in England and Canada who is also doing some, some work with radio technology and in particular radio photo facsimile technology. His name is William Stevenson. And my presumption is that Stevenson and Johnson became colleagues in the what, what was sort of the nascent communications industry in the first several decades of the 20th century because they had common interests and trade relations across the ocean. Uh, Stevenson had interests in, in England, Britain, and, and Canada, and the, and the Commonwealth. Johnson had interests here. And so they formed some kind of business alliance across the ocean. And Stevenson enters the Townsend Brown story in um, 1933 when Brown is invited to go on an oceanic expedition to explore the bottom of the ocean in the Caribbean. And just before they embark from Nassau in the Bahamas, William S. Stevenson comes on board to have dinner with Johnson and the, the crew of, of this expedition, which included Townsend Brown. He had been recruited as a radio operator. So that is where we begin to form the nexus of Eldridge Johnson, William S. Stevenson, and Townsend Brown. And the reason Stevenson's name is familiar is because as World War II begins to unfold, he is the man that Churchill turned to to organize the British intelligence network. 
starting with something called British Security Coordination, which actually had its headquarters in New York. And, and the work that Stevenson did became the foundation for the whole national, international military security intelligence apparatus that is still in place today. Uh, he, he encouraged the formation of the OSS, uh, the operation of the or, uh, Office of Strategic Services under the tutelage of somebody named William Donovan, which became the, f- the, the cornerstone of the CIA in the late 1940s. But Stevenson's name is familiar in history because William, uh, um, Winston Churchill gave him the code name Intrepid. And so some people who have some knowledge of this history from this period of, uh, around World War II are familiar with the idea of the man called Intrepid. Mm-hmm. And that is William S. Stevenson, who sort of weaves in and out of the Townsend Brown story because he continued to operate in a private way the intelligence networks that he had formed starting in the 1930s. Something that um, this really, you know, grabbed my attention is, so I, I do know something about William Stevenson, and, you know, he, as you know, that's, that could be a separate show all by sure. itself. But one thing in, in all of my reading and understanding of him is he was a very brilliant man, and another thing was he picked his friends uh, very carefully. And when I say friends, from my reading and understanding, is he used all the people that he knew as almost like pawns on a giant intelligence chessboard. So not to say that he wouldn't have genuinely been your friend, but he knew that you would be important somewhere along the way. And that really perked me up because I thought, well, he obviously knew a lot about Townsend Brown and, you know, maybe a lot of stuff that we're not even aware of. Um, Something I mentioned to you off air, I want to bring this up because uh, I think it has a kind of a good connection to this, to what we're talking about is 20 years ago, I was able to speak to the author of A Man Called Intrepid whose name was also William Stevenson, an mm-hmm. odd, odd coincidence. Yeah. and I, one, one was Stevenson with a PH and the other was Stevenson with a V. Yes, and I think we also talked about, wouldn't it have been funny if your name was Townsend Brown? <laughs> you know, yeah, right. Townsend Brown <laughs> yeah, writes that, a biography that, on Townsend Brown. Yeah, that's what a coincidence that is. <laughs> <laughs> but when I was speaking to the author, um, William Stevenson, and this was about 20 years ago, and he lived in Toronto at the time. Mm-hmm. And I got to talk to him a, f- a few times, and he mentioned a lot of interesting things to me, but something that's really stuck in my mind and I think is appropriate here is uh, the intrepid uh, Stephen Stevenson told the author that there was a, there's a lot of World War II history that at the time it was so secret and could not be trusted, so it was never written down. Only a handful of people would know some of these missions, and it was never transmitted. That's how that's how top secret it was. And the intrepid Stevenson said, 
So there's a lot of information, stories that no one will ever know because it has died with the people who knew it. And that's, and, and I thought, and that has stuck with me ever since because I thought this is so applicable to so much we're hearing today about uh, UFOs, like with mm-hmm. David Grush, the whistleblower. You know, everyone thinks everything is automatically written down because, you know, there's a law that has to be written down. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a black world. There's an intelligence world where who knows what's going on for, for really. And, and uh, Intrepid Stevenson, he lived in Bermuda near the end of his life. And the author, Stevenson, was telling me up until the last days of his life, he was connected to the world's intelligence community. People would phone him. He would phone them. It's like as if he had never left. And he was just by then a, a citizen, like he was not part of any government. So, I, Yeah, yeah. So I think this connection with Townsend Brown and, and Stevenson, there is just – it just it makes your imagination race because it it, it does and it, it 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 forces you to face the question of like like they kept asking in in the TV show Westworld do you ever question the nature of your reality yeah and and that's kind of what we're doing here and i have a kind of a preternatural reluctance to do that I, I never, never prior to getting sucked into this, uh, I really, uh, I was, my, let's just say my interest in UFOs was peripheral at best. I, I would accept that there were things that we were not knowledgeable of and that there was a likelihood uh, or if not a certainty that there are other forms of life in, in this mysterious universe, but I never really thought about it a whole lot. And and now, because I've been drawn into this story, I, I find myself thinking thing, these things a lot and wondering things like, is it possible, to what extent is it possible that the kinds of things that we're talking about exist and can effectively be withheld from public knowledge? Yes. How do we even do that? You're correct, because I had... Probably more than a year ago or two years ago, I just could never believe that there could be anything not known. Like the the government couldn't have UFOs because there's no possible way you could keep that secret. But since uh, Grosh has come out and some others, and then going back and reading more on, on Stevenson and going over some of my older notes, I thought, well... You know, there is stuff we don't know, and yeah. and how much of it can be kept secret and is secret and we'll never know, right? It's yeah, it's really altered my my thinking. And let me let me, if I can, uh, take you off on a tangent here, and then see if I can bring it back to what we're talking about. I have been very intrigued over the last six months or so, maybe more. I guess eight months now with the, um, the interest generated by Christopher Nolan's movie Oppenheimer. Yes. Yeah. And I've seen that now four or five times. And part of my motivation for that is because when we're talking about Oppenheimer, we're talking about, and the atomic bomb, we're talking about just one manifestation 
of that new scientific paradigm that emerged in 1905. Now I'm going to take a tangent from the tangent, which will make it even harder to bring it back. But um, what intrigues me, because I've written about Farnsworth and his, 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 his movement from developing television to going on to nuclear fusion, is that we're all preoccupied with, the, with Oppenheimer and the atomic bomb, but that's not the best thing that came out of Einstein's work. Do you know what Einstein was awarded his Nobel Prize for in 1921? That I don't know. See, most people don't. They would assume that he was granted the he was awarded the Nobel Prize for relativity or uh, um, E equals mc squared. But the very first paper that Einstein released in 1905, which became the foundation of quantum mechanics. Was, a, was an articulation and quantification of the photoelectric effect, which is the process by which electricity is generated when light strikes certain materials. And that, that's the foundation of every video screen on the planet. And so when I hear Christopher Nolan in an interview say that we live in Oppenheimer's world, my head explodes a little bit because we don't live in Oppenheimer's world. We live in Einstein and Farnsworth's world. How many of us have an atomic bomb in our pocket or on our desktop or in our living room? But we all have screens. Yes. And what we don't realize is that the screens can trace their origins back to a sketch that Philo Farnsworth drew in 1922, which was the pure personification of the photoelectric effect in a vacuum tube. So, now let me see if I can start dialing my way back from these tangents. <laughs> um, now that I've you know, done my rant about Oppenheimer versus Farnsworth. Um, the instructive thing, one of the instructive things in, in contemplating Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project is that, in fact, the knowledge of the public knowledge of the development of the atomic bomb was effectively held withheld from the public. So until the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and Truman went on the radio and said, it is an atomic bomb and it harnesses the fundamental forces of the universe, the public had no knowledge that anything like that existed or was being developed. And there was a so lot can, of people involved with that. There was a lot of yeah. people involved in that. And, of course, the irony of that is that while the public and, and even, even Truman didn't know about the atomic bomb until, until uh, Roosevelt died in 1945, and, and then they had to tell him. <laughs> um, but the irony there is that while the public and even Truman did not know, Stalin did. I often think that you know, when, when they say we can't release this information about UFOs because it's classified mm -hmm. or whatever, I always think probably the people that, the your enemies, they probably know, and it's just really the yeah. public. <laughs> yeah. And the public doesn't know. That's the the, the funny yeah, part there, of there, it. Yeah, there's a great story. I think it's in the book because um, after Roosevelt died, and there's a whole story in there about, you know, the scramble for control after Roosevelt died, and he'd been president for like 13 years at that point. Um, and then Truman and Churchill meet with Stalin at Potsdam. 
And true, and this is also in the movie Oppenheimer. And Truman is waiting for word from Alamogordo as to whether or not the bomb worked. And once he got word, he then shared cryptically with Stalin that we he had this new weapon that was going to end the war. And Stalin nodded knowingly uh, and, and pretended that he didn't know when he knew the whole time. Because there were people at, at, at uh, Los Alamos who were actually spying on behalf of uh, the Soviet Union. And he, the, the, the principal in that, a man named Fuchs, actually shows up in the movie Oppenheimer. So, um, so anyway, bef- yeah, so the final, the final uh, return on this discussion, these tangents about Oppenheimer and Farnsworth, the final return is what I have been considering of late – and mind you, once the book finally came out, it was like, okay, now I've opened Pandora's box and I'm, I'm reinvestigating things, looking at them from different perspectives. But given the model of Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project, I am contemplating the hypothesis that the man that we are talking about, Townsend Brown, was effectively the Oppenheimer of a whole world of black projects about which we know nothing. Uh, you know, they're definitely what you said could definitely be true. And, you know, I believe the connection with um, <clears throat> uh, William Stevenson, boy, that to me, that kind of really backs up your point because there is a lot of secret there, right? There's. Um, You're talking about. Levels of control of communications, monitoring communications, maybe preventing messages that you don't want transmitted from being transmitted or reaching a receiver. Um, there, there's a world of possibilities that at least justify exploring the hypothesis. And then, as you say, there's so much, there's so much that seems to be going on that seems to want to be revealed um, that seen from another angle, it gives some credibility to this idea that there's a lot of stuff going on in the background about which we don't know. We know, we do know that much of what Townsend Brown was working on was classified. We know this pretty much for a fact, and I can talk about where those facts surface. So, so at least the hypothesis is worth considering that there is a world of black research going on that is somehow kept from public knowledge because the people that are doing the development have control of the communications. When, when I'm asked about, um, to go back to the very start of our conversation, I didn't, I didn't use this line, but I usually do when I'm talking with people about Townsend Brown for the first time. Um, what we know for certain about Townsend Brown is that he spent half of his life engaged in some kind of covert, classified military research. And the other half of his life, he was engaged in covert intelligence operations to cover up the classified military research. That's why I say I had to devote myself to trying to write the biography of a man whose story cannot be told. So what we're talking about here is the research and the means to conceal the research. And because it's been concealed, it it enters a realm of total speculation. There's one um, something we've just touched on in our conversation, and mm-hmm. now it seems really clear to me. But there's a few things in your <clears throat> in your book that 
it shocked me because I'd never known this. And this, what I'm about to say, it actually almost blew my mind because I, I even think about it often. I think, wow, is it, wow. Like, and that is when Townsend Brown, during the uh, latter stages of World War II, he was dropped behind enemy lines in, into Germany, yeah. parachuted from a, a Lancaster yeah. bomber. And, yeah. and you have to think that William Stevenson, his hands are all over that. Like you just, like how would that even happen? Like it's it's just so bizarre. How does this scientist? Yeah, it, it became, how many how many how many curtains can you peel back before you finally find something? Yes. <laughs> you know? I, so I wonder if you could talk about that because that is truly fascinating. Like when you read about Townsend Brown, okay, you're getting that. It seems you know, kind of normal, yeah. and then you read this and you're going, what? Yeah, this, I, I like to think of this as the somebody call Spielberg part of the story. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, so there's there's a lot of things kind of grinding away in the background here. Um, on the surface, the way it's presented in the book, there's a chapter in there that begins with that talks about the Foo Fighters, and here I always like to go off on a tangent. Most people nowadays, when you mention Foo Fighters, they think of David Grohl's band. <laughs> the band, yeah. They don't know that David Grohl named his band for an aerial phenomenon that was observed around Germany in the ending days of World War II that were called Foo Fighters. And they are a complete mystery. Um, it wouldn't be totally inaccurate to describe them as seemingly intelligently controlled balls of lightning, like ball lightning. They, they looked like balls of light or balls of lightning, and they seemed to be intelligently controlled because most of the reports of them during that period, and we're talking about in the fall of 1945 and going into the spring of 19, the winter of 1945 as the war is winding down, these aerial phenomena are appearing in the skies over Germany and, and the Allied flyers are seeing them and reporting on them. And the reports are extensive and, and for the essentially verified because they were seen by so many people. But what they were has never been fully explained. So um, now it's April of 1945. We are literally in the closing weeks of the war. And um, Franklin Roosevelt dies, you know, I believe it was April 12th, 1945. And that creates a power vacuum on many levels. It's not only that the Oval Office is, is, is suddenly occupied by an entirely different purpose person, but behind the scenes there are scrambles for control of various elements of the national security and intelligence establishment. And the story that was conveyed to me was like the morning after Roosevelt dies, Townsend Brown kisses his wife, Josephine, goodbye, and disappears. And, and does not appear again until a few days later when he literally parachutes behind enemy lines or, or, or near enemy lines uh, in Europe to investigate the Foo Fighters. But that's not all he was there to investigate because there are all kinds of units scattered around 
Eastern France and Western Germany looking for all of the German coding apparatus, the ciphers, because they want to get their, they, the Germans had special cipher apparatus that they were using that the Russians hadn't been able to crack, and we want to get hold of those before the Russians do. So there are these teams roaming around in, in Europe, in eastern France, western Germany, trying to find these cipher installations, and Townsend Brown got connected to one of those operations. And the best I can say is that he, he was there with his own laundry list of things that he was looking for, and we don't know with any certainty what was on that list other than the likelihood that he was trying to gain some insight into what the Foo Fighters were, and he was also working with the intelligence apparatus on their agenda to track down these German cipher installations. It is a, a, a weird, weird part of his life because... You know, you don't. Pit, he was in the navy, so you know he did. He did have military service, mm -hmm. but he. You always think of him more of a like as a scientist, and you know, like the scientist dropping in behind enemy lines. Like I, every every time I even think of it, I think that is just weird. And then something else that. So if that didn't blow my mind, the next part blew my mind even more because as I'm reading about what you're writing that he did behind enemy lines in, in this situation going down these roads at night, secret, the enemies everywhere. Mm -hmm. He meets Robert Sarbacher. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, when I read that, I thought, come on, <laughs> what? <laughs> like I, I just, I wonder if you could talk about that. And then, and also like, I, to me, I did not know this at all. Like, I, I'm thinking, so where did you get this information? Like, I had two of my own covert sources. So we've talked a little bit about Linda Brown, Brown's daughter. She was my primary source. And for the first year, remember what you asked me, because I may wind away and, and need to be drawn back in. But for the first year, we really struggled because we had so little information that we could actually go on. And, and we kept running into kind of brick walls where people would share with us information that discredited Brown. We tried to get military records, and they, we couldn't find the military records. It's one thing after another. And I've described the process of the first year as like spilling all the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle out on the table, and then going to look at the box cover to see what it's supposed to look like, and oh, there's no picture on the box cover. So we were really at a loss until somebody who had been a, a classmate of Linda's in high school in the early 60s, who was later drawn into whatever network we're talking about that Townsend Brown was a part of with Intrepid and, and Eldridge Johnson and so forth, became part of that network as well. Um, he was actually, he, he was believed dead until suddenly we start getting these mysterious emails from somebody. And that's all, I, I won't read recount what's in the book, but, but that, that's all in the book. But I started getting these emails and messages and phone calls, and, and suddenly this person who we thought had been deceased for many years surfaces in a way and begins 
giving us, uh, let's say, thumbnail sketches of what's on the box top of the jigsaw puzzle. And so some of that information, some of the information that we're talking about here comes from that source. That's my first secondary source. He is throughout the book codenamed Morgan. But then after a few months, Morgan introduced me to another individual who is in the book is codenamed O'Reilly. And O'Reilly first encounters Townsend Brown after he has parachuted into Europe in 1945 O'Reilly is part of the escort team that shepherds Townsend Brown around Germany behind German lines and um, is the source of the, of the knowledge that we have about what he was doing there. So it is from O'Reilly that we get this story about um, Townsend Brown on an expedition to recover a cipher machine and being injured. And it's it's pretty grisly, actually. And like I say, call Spielberg. Um, and and then O'Reilly makes it back to the camp that was managing this expedition. The expedition is called TCOM, which was the Targeted Information Committee, and that's a fairly commonly known expedition in Europe uh, during the the last months of World War II to recover these cipher machines and Lord knows what else. Um, and, and Riley gets back to the camp and a, a man named, uh, Howard campaign, who is the director of this operation is getting ready to send another mission out on what would essentially be a suicide mission when a, a fleet of vehicles shows up with flags flying and somebody jumps out of the car and identifies himself as taking over the command of this operation. And that is Robert Sarbacher. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. And Sarbacher is another one of these names. It's like, who the hell is this guy? And he only surfaces occasionally. It's like, these guys do a really good job of hiding him, him, themselves. But his name comes up a couple of times in the annals of ufology because of a couple letters that he wrote or, or some references. There's a letter from somebody in 1950 named Wilbert Smith where he cites a conversation with Sarbacher, where, uh, a point made, uh, Sarbacher tells him that the knowledge of, of extraterrestrial or UFO or highly classified propulsion techniques is as guarded a secret as the hydrogen bomb still was in 1950. That's, that, that's the first incident, instance where we kind of see Sarbacher surface as conveying that bit of knowledge. And then there's another letter from, I think, 1957 that was written to somebody named Steinman, where he talks about that stuff again. Yes. So Sarbacher is is this kind of fringe figure that when his name comes up, lends some credibility to the UFO legends. But before you can get even the flavor in your mouth, it just dissolves. Well, so that's how I know Robert Sarbacher. And mm-hmm. like you mentioned, it's this fa- very famous uh, memo that Wilbert Smith uh, yeah. wrote. And uh, actually we have, there's a Canadian ufologist named Arthur Bray. So we have him to thank for that because he actually found the uh, memo in the Canadian archives. It, oh, really? Yeah. Cool. And yeah. so, but that's how I know Robert Sarbacher. Yeah, a very important part of uh, ufology, that's for sure. But mm-hmm. like I mentioned, when I <laughs> when I read 
he was jumping out of a jeep and taking command in in Germany. I thought, what? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Like a and then he then he spearheaded the operation to recover Townsend Brown, who was still at the the cipher operation that they had intercept where, where they were intercepted and essentially ambushed. And and Sarbacher directed the operation to retrieve Brown and bring him back. So part so half or part of the way that you know of this story is through O'Reilly. And mm-hmm. so O'Reilly, you you did you correspond with him and did you actually ever meet him or talk to him or you just corresponded with him? I'm going to say that I just corresponded with him. And he, if I got this right would eventually be with the CIA? I I don't know what his formal career assignments were. But he was in something in in the intelligence community for sure from Well, you know, here here is where we ha- kind of have to um, elevate a layer and and extend the conversation from where we were talking earlier about the private intelligence networks that formed during the 1930s. And the, the background there is that after World War I, the, the governmental establishment intelligence networks kind of fell a bit fallow. And there's one famous story about, I can't remember his name now, the Secretary of State, who insisted that gentlemen did not read other gentlemen's mail. And so there's a fall off in in sanctioned governmental intelligence activities, and that gap is filled by these private intelligence networks like we're talking about between Eldridge Johnson and William Stevenson. And when that subject began to come up in my correspondence, the group that we're talking about was called the Caroline Group. Yes. Caroline being the name of the yacht on which Townsend Brown went on this Caribbean exploration expedition in the 1930s where he met Eldridge Reeves Johnson and William Stevenson just before the expedition departed. And the name of the boat was the name of the ship was the Caroline. And so that is that when, when Morgan in my correspondence with him would refer to this highly covert, very internecine intelligence network, we called it the Caroline group. And the best that I can say about O'Reilly was that he was an operative within this Caroline group, which is this private, highly secret intelligence operation that probably has tendrils that reach into the established intelligence operations once they're formalized after World War II with the National Security Act that creates the NSA and the CIA. And so we're contemplating the possibility that those structures are actually being used to keep these things highly secret. So the best that I can say about what I know of O'Reilly's professional operations and and, and engagement was that he was part of this secret intelligence network, but I don't have any evidence that he ever had like a formal position in anything like the CIA or the NSA. It's funny when you, when you look into this, it's amazing. It seems incredible now, but before world war II, uh, the United States didn't really have much of an intelligence group, not anything like what it would become. And yeah. like you were mentioning, a lot of it was based on uh, William Stevenson and you know yeah. setting up shop in New York and uh, Bill Donovan and pulling those. I, really, 
there, that's another episode of, for another day, but <laughs> yeah, really. that's a huge, yeah, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> that's a huge, <laughs> huge, huge topic. But yeah. as we can see, definitely Townsend Brown is, is definitely woven into this for sure. Um, it's so it seems, yes. You've briefly mentioned him already, and he's very important in your book. There is a person named Morgan, mm-hmm. and that person shows up early in the Browns' mm-hmm. life. Yeah. It's yeah. it's a very, very fascinating connection. Mm-hmm. It makes you think, think of a lot of things, but he turns up in Townsend Brown's life, and then... It's hard to say what he was. I'm going to say he was kind of a boyfriend to Linda yeah. Brown. I, yeah, well, but, very much so. But it's a strange relationship over a long time, and yeah. I I wonder what did what do you make of him? And and you uh, had personal contact with him. Mm-hmm. What do you um, make I, of him? I, I believe that we're talking about an individual who was very highly ranked in the official national security and intelligence establishment, in addition to his covert ties to the private networks. And, and he is drawn into that by Townsend Brown after, after he begins to um, pursue his daughter, Linda, in, I think, 1963, 64. I mean, it, it, it all revolves around school years. I'm, I'm, I, I can sometimes be off on the exact year. But they were, Linda and the fellow that I'm calling Morgan uh, were classmates at a high school outside of Philadelphia in, we'll say, 1964, and, and began a romantic relationship during that time. But pr- on one particular visit to the Browns' home, which was a kind of a stately home on the outskirts of Philadelphia called Ashlawn, um, they were going to go ice skating one afternoon in the, in the winter, I guess, of 64. And, and Morgan just kind of wandered around the house and found Townsend Brown working in his study in the house on a, a manifestation of the thing that eventually became the ionic breeze air purifier that we refer to in the book as simply the fan, which was a device that demonstrated this electrokinetic effect that was what he discovered in the 1920s. And and they talked with each other for a while, and Townsend explained some aspects of this device that he was experimenting with and and could see that Morgan understood what he was talking about in a way that others had not previously. And so that's the genesis of the relationship between Townsend and Morgan, which comes out of the relationship between Linda and Morgan. And I used the Linda and Morgan story a lot in the book because we haven't even talked about Josephine and the relationship, the domestic relationship that that Brown had with his wife and, and family. But we don't have a lot of information about that. But I think there's a parallel construction in the way that the relationship evolved between um, Morgan and Linda, and we have we were I was able to get more information about that, so I used it because it's a kind of a mirror image of what life would have been like for Townsend and Josephine. And I've been thinking about this a little bit lately. When you do talk to somebody who finds out at some point in their lives that their parents, their father, their mother had something to do 
with covert intelligence operations, they don't know much. (laughs) They just like, well, my father was gone all the time. And I found out years after he died that he was part of the CIA. And that's kind of what's going on here. So what the relationship between Morgan and Linda gives us is kind of a look into the reality of that kind of a situation. There's two conversations in your book that you bring up with, um, where Mor- 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 <laughs> I know where we're going. Where Morgan was involved, and both of those immediately snapped in my mind. Uh-huh. And this is when uh, Morgan was talking about he felt there was an organization that was shielding a lot of the aspects of Townsend Brown's work. And I, I thought, that is interesting, because... That obviously means he knew a lot more than what he was uh, letting people know. And then also he made another statement to um, Brown when they were having a conversation, and they were talking about time travel, except Mm -hmm. that Brown wasn't talking about it as if it was hypothetical. He was talking about it if it was either occurring or very possible in the future. All right, so we're we're into another realm here, and and for the, for your listeners' sake, I, I will start by saying that I know that anything I might say on this subject is highly hypothetical. But there's there's a theoretical underpinning to what would connect the Townsend Brown story to the prospect of what we're calling time travel, and it goes all the way back to Einstein and the paradigm that was introduced at the beginning of the 20th century. So in his second raft of great papers, when uh, Einstein released the theory of general relativity in 1915, he introduces the concept of the space-time continuum, where somehow space and time are interwoven threads of the same fabric of the universe. And in the theory of general relativity, he explains how gravity is actually a manifestation of the presence of mass in space. It's a curvature of space caused by the presence of massive objects like planets and stars. So there's a fairly famous illustration where you see the sun suspended in, in like a membrane. And the membrane is pulled down by the presence of this massive object, and then an object circles around it because of this curvature caused by the large object. So we're talking about this curvature in the space-time continuum caused by massive objects producing what we call gravity. So, But remember, we're talking about the space-time continuum. Now we'll go back to what Brown is, um, what the legend of Brown says that he discovered, and, and this is usually part of my introductory talk as well. So this thing that he discovered, as I said earlier, when employed using different materials and in a different way, produces an artificial gravitational field, or what we call anti-gravity. And I have some aversion to the expression anti-gravity, and I'm not sure what that is, but... So if we are talking about the ability to manipulate gravity with electricity and gravity is a function of the is a curvature in the space-time continuum then if with electricity we can bend space we can also bend time 
Now, how that manifests in terms of any kind of technology that we could actually step into and wake up in a different time period, I don't know. But that's the theoretical underpinning of the conversation that we're having where one night, I believe they were in Florida and Morgan was visiting Linda on a college break and Townsend asks Morgan uh, if he could travel in time, where would he go? And and there are similar conversations over the course of their time together. And at one point, Townsend says to Morgan that, uh, I do believe that it will be possible in your lifetime. Now, the problem I have with that is that it's it's a kind it's it's an oxymoron all, all, almost because if we're talking about the ability to travel in time then it exists in all time so it's not something that we discover in the future it's something that's been around all along there's you see what I'm saying? I do there's so I want to ask you a couple of questions about Morgan so you yeah. personally communicated with with Morgan yeah, I had an extensive email correspondence with Morgan. There were something on the order of 2,000 messages back and forth. And from your book, it seems that um, so Morgan is no longer with us. Mm-hmm. And we can't go into everything on, the, on this podcast, but I, I can tell my listeners that just to follow the Morgan story, part of the biography is really fascinating and it's it's almost a separate story by itself, but you're so Morgan. He was heavily in connected to the uh, intelligence agency or in the CIA or something. That is for sure. After reading, yeah, your- we're we're not entirely certain which organization and and the character shows up in other places in literature, uh, and and those are all cited in the book. And we're not certain what organization Morgan was most closely affiliated with. At first blush, we might think that it was the National Security Agency, the NSA. Um, There's also a possibility, if not a plausibility or likelihood, that he was involved with something called the NRO. Do you know which that one is? What that is? There are so many alphabets in the alphabet yeah, soup. Right. It's hard to <laughs> pick keep. a letter. Pick three letters. <laughs> it's hard to keep yeah. track of them. <laughs> yeah, the NRO is the National Reconnaissance Organization or the National Reconnaissance Office, and that is the branch of the intelligence services that monitors and directs satellite communications. And I'll just add because we're in a hypothetical realm here that that's kind of interesting because if if visitors are coming in from other places in the galaxy, where would they be detected first? Yes. <laughs> what, so one thing I, and this just may be what I have taken from the book, but I got the impression that there is a case to be made that Morgan was actually a handler. Like he was... Mm. kind of put into Townsend Brown's life to just kind of keep tabs on him. I I definitely feel that, that that is a distinct. Well, I don't know if handler is the right word, but protector would certainly be. And he had, he had people like that in his life uh, almost throughout. There was some, there was a presence, somebody who was kind of there to, like you say, keep an eye on him and make sure that uh, no danger, excuse me, no danger befell him. 
And Morgan, Morgan served in that role. Yeah. There's a, and this brings us to my next question, which to me, this is another one of those loaded, loaded questions. Uh Oh, is (laughs) so uh, Linda Brown is, we know from your book, she worked with her dad a lot on some of his Mm -hmm. experiments and helping him with mail and things like that. Yeah. On on the things that we can know about, she worked with him. Yes. And so she had got correspondence, a letter from a person who was describing a a very detailed uh, sighting of a UFO and she brought it to her dad's attention and was going through it all. And Townsend Brown said to her, did it wobble? Yeah. Did the UFO wobble? Because if it wobbled, it's one of ours. Yeah, so that's actually a story from the NICAP period. Um, and the uh, Linda taught, Linda did, in uh, 10 years ago, uh, she did a, an Ask Me Anything on Reddit, and she talked about it there. And she also talks about it in a manuscript that she wrote after I had, had abandoned the project, and, and uh, Linda and I became somewhat estranged after that happened in 2009. And the story that you're referring to is they are, uh, Linda and her father are getting reports from NICAP. Somebody whose name escapes me at the moment is sending them the reports that they're getting. And and uh, Townsend instructs Linda to keep an eye out for the ones that wobble. Those are ours. And when Linda has talked about this, she says that she didn't go any farther than that with her father. So we don't have any firsthand evidence of what he might have meant with that. Because she had learned learned by then to just kind of take what her father said at face value. So that opens all kinds of questions like, who the hell is ours? Which ours? The human ours? The American ours? You know, the Caroline group ours? I don't know. And um, I, so before uh, Grush came onto mm-hmm. the scene, I just absorbed that. And I just, like so many things in ufology, you just kind of file it. Like, oh, okay, that could be anything. Who knows? Yeah, right. But... Since Grush has come out and he has said, oh, yes, we know about these for the last 70 years, we have them, now it made me look back on all these things that I just thought were quirky asides, and I thought, oh, well, this could be, wait, this could be true. Like, this could be, it takes on a whole different uh, perspective. Right, and then you come back to the earlier hypothesis of to what extent was Townsend Brown the Oppenheimer of the darkest, blackest yes. classified research that has been conducted over the last 70 or 80 years? And, and something else we've just talked about briefly is another part that is one of those things, my head shakes every time you think about it, <sighs> yeah. is so you think of Townsend Brown, all he's been doing and everything that he's been doing in your book, and then he becomes like a co-founder of NICAP and he becomes the head of NICAP. And I think, yeah. So wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. And then NICAP takes on a life of its own. And, and I, I think you, yeah, we, you and I are talking because you you spoke with Linda Powell. Yes. Who wrote the biography of Kehoe. I interviewed and, her and a I, few I commend the work ago. that she did. She did a fabulous job of getting into the weeds on the forming of NICAP. 
and and Townsend Brown's brief affiliation with NICAP, even though he's he was the one who kind of came up with the name in a committee uh, of of friends and family, they came up with the National Investigations Committee on, on Aerial Phenomenon, and and this is where you get the sense that from his position in whatever this dark realm we're talking about is, he's kind of seeding things out. And and NICAP was formed in part out of his expressed curiosity to know more about how these observed phenomena worked. Or he's looking for some evidence that they have mastered that anomalous electrical force that he discovered and that they have found a way to bend space and time and travel through the galaxies instantly or communicate through the galaxies because they've mastered whatever that anomalous force was. And that that's an evidence of a much higher civilization that we're living in. So it's, it's a very interesting thing to observe where he's expressing this curiosity about what that technology is while he's creating this organization, which goes on and takes a life of his own, and then even has a role in, in the work that he felt he needed to do at a time for a while to discredit himself, that he was maybe exposing too much. And there's a lot of stuff in the book about how he adopted what Morgan referred to as the wounded prairie chicken routine, where it seems where he's trying to divert our attention from the really useful technology to a much less useful form of it, uh, just, just to steer the attention away because too much got out. And so it's interesting to see how he operates and, and what was the real motivation behind something like NICAP. It is. It's, it's just another one of those head shaker moments where you think, so to, to want to become the head of NICAP at that time, you had to have had more than a, a passing interest in ufology. Like, I think it's really a tip of the hat. And also something mm-hmm. interesting is there was a few, like, known CIA people on the, yeah. the panel with him, like, known. And there's a lot of speculation that maybe most of the people with NICAP were part oh. of the CIA. So, Well, that's where you come back to the intelligence apparatus not only gathering the information but having the tools to contain or suppress the information. I know, and as you've mentioned uh, Linda Powell's book goes into this aspect very deeply in her, her Donald Kehoe uh, biography. And, you know, I think it would be a perfect companion book to your book. You got to get both of these books to really sure to start to comprehend this stuff. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk briefly. And the problem is there is so much here that we can't really delve too much into it, but a few of Townsend Brown's experiments. There's something um, that is just almost humorous when you see it because he started these experiments with objects that looked like flying saucers. Like there's no way around Mm -hmm. it. And he actually got 16 millimeter movie cameras to film Mm -hmm. his experiments. So there's a record of everything he did. I wonder if you can talk about that and some of the other things that he, he looked into. Yeah, there's there's a couple of stories there. Um, when you talk about the 16 millimeter film footage, some of which you can find on the YouTube, um, we're talking about the years around 57 and 58 when he was working under the auspices of a man named Agnew Bonson, 
who was an industrialist in North Carolina. And, and Linda loves to tell the story that Bonson was beginning to do this research into gravity or anti-gravity and trying to find other means of propulsion and, and then learned about Townsend Brown and the way Linda explains it. And I think it's, it's clever to a point. It says they went looking for him until he found them. Hmm. And that, that serves this, this idea I have that Brown was sort of seeding the landscape. And, and I think that he knew much more than he let on. And, and when, you, when you see the 16-millimeter film footage, what you're actually seeing are canopies that kind of look like umbrellas that are levitating themselves. And, and I think that he is working with Bonson with what we call the Bifeld-Brown effect, which is the name that this anomalous effect has taken. And he is demonstrating up to a certain point. And, and there's some useful things in the things that, that Bonson wrote during the period, particularly on, around the subject of high voltage. And it is one of the two or three instances when we have a documented instance of the anomalous force being observed. So there is a non-anomalous force observed in the things we call lifters. Are you familiar with the lifters? A little bit, uh, yeah. Yeah, th those are these like, like triangular devices. There are two ways that the Bifeld-Brown eff effect manifests. It's with what we call a liquid, or I'm sorry, a fluid dielectric, so there's air between the two electrodes of the capacitor or a solid dielectric. And it's in the solid dielectric that things manifest differently. The, the seemingly anti-gravitational effect of a lifter can be discounted to what we call ion wind because of the presence of air between the two electrodes. But if you build a device with a solid dielectric separating the electrodes, there is no air, there is no ion wind. And the story I want to get to is you were talking about the saucers. There are photographs around the web of Brown holding this disc-shaped device, which he used in experiments not in North Carolina, but in France. And in 2008, I spoke to the man who organized those tests outside of Paris in 1956. His name was Jacques Cornillon. And he worked for, I can't do justice to the name, but, but he arranged for Brown to come to France and run these tests in a vacuum with the solid dielectrics. And what's important about the conversation that I had with Cornion was that he also says that even within those occasions when they were witnessing ionic wind, there was still some other unaccountable force that manifest. And so over the course of the Townsend Brown story, there are three or four occasions when we have documentation of something unaccounted for in conventional orthodox science is clearly observed. And I think Brown knew exactly what it was, and that he was seeding the landscape and providing hints to what that was and how it might ultimately be used. And 
correspondingly, he's looking for evidence that other civilizations have found it and used it and put it to work and are able to gallivant around the galaxy because they know what to do with that force that we still regard as anomalous and unorthodox. There is something, and this will show my inadequacies in science for sure, <laughs> but, <laughs> but there is something that he worked on, and it may have been what you've been talking about, and it is something that's used on B-2 bombers today, yeah. Yeah. the uh, electrokinetic effect. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that, that's, that's going to be under the umbrella of the fluid dielectric manifestation of the Bifeld-Brown effect because we're dealing with air. And my understanding is um, there's another conversation. I don't know if we're going to have time for it today, but there's a conversation to be had about what happens when you get to extremely high voltages, like in the, 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 the tens of millions of volts, but extremely low amperage. And, and something bizarre happens, and there are numerous accounts of this, where you have a whole lot of pressure, but it's sort of not pressing on anything. So that's the difference between voltage as the pressure and amperage as the force that's being pressed. But you know, I probably just gave some uh, electrical engineer apoplexy <laughs> with that explanation. Um, but on the, on the subject of the B-2 bomber, what has been reported, and of course denied by the military, is that the um, a voltage is fed into the, this is the flame jet generator, where a voltage is fed into the exhaust and then stepped up to many millions of volts to create a negative cloud, or a, a negative field behind the B-2 bomber which acts against a positive field in front of the B-2 bomber to effectively create a, we'll call it an ionic wave. And at high altitude, where the, the B-2 bomber has less air for the wings to bite, this effect kicks in and keeps it elevated by surfing this electrically generated ionic wave. So... I guess the last thing that we that we can talk about because um, it, it's just so much you really have to read the book really to we just kind of scratched the surface here is that Townsend Brown he spent the last years of his life on Catalina Island which is about mm -hmm. twenty six miles off the the coast of Southern California and something that I had uh, spoken to Paul about in a previous conversation is as some of my listeners know i grew up in in huntington beach california and i'd been to Catalina island a few times and definitely Catalina island there is something there there is this energy or this feeling or kind of like when people talk about sedona arizona i i definitely felt it every time i was there and it's a totally different vibe than southern california Some otherworldly presence yes and you know you could live in southern california but you go to Catalina island you're literally in a different world it's it's mm -hmm. nothing one is nothing like yeah. the other and i think it it came out when there's a lot of songs about you know it was the island of romance i think back in the 50s and 60s you couldn't talk about these really hypothetical feelings so they called it love like you found love there was the you know that kind of but there is something there there's a feeling of something now one interesting thing is there's another island not far from uh Catalina Island it's called San Clemente Island 
and that's another podcast as well, but that is a, a, bait, a U.S. base where a lot of interesting things go on. And the cover story is you can't land your boat there because they have big signs up that years ago it had been used to fire uh, Navy shells too. So there's live ordnance buried all over. So don't yeah, don't come here. Yeah, it, it, so- it sounds like uh, Area 51 by the sea. <laughs> and also <laughs> the airfield they built is one of the longest in the U.S. Air Force. It's like, mm. why would they need a super long? It's very odd. And... Uh, you know, and as you know, with intelligence, they always say the best play, place to hide something is in plain sight. Yeah. And what plainer sight is an island loca- located next to about 20 million people? But <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so, and Ta- Townsend Brown came back to Catalina Island three times in his his life, and that's where he ended up uh, passing mm-hmm. away. And his wife didn't even like islands, so <laughs> I I just feel there's something. There might have been something there. It's just my kind of uh, speculation. Is there anything that you can add to that? Or there is, and and it's I, I, I'm a little reluctant to get into it because it open it opens up yet another one of these cans of worms that the whole Townsend Brown story is filled with. But um, Linda had told me on a couple of occasions um, that in her father's retirement, submarines would come into Avalon Bay. And Linda's husband, George, ferried Townsend out to these submarines. And, and there, there was an, an illusion at some point that he may have been working on some kind of communications with submarines. And that's a whole other rabbit hole that we could go down. Yes. But there are these stories that, that when he lived on Catalina Island in the last few years of his life, that... Um, these submarines would come into Avalon Bay and Townsend go, would go out to them and bring them things and, and, and bring things back. And I just – I don't have any of the details on that. But there was something else. Like when you were talking about earlier about how William S. Stevenson, the man called Intrepid, was involved in these networks all his life. Same with Townsend Brown. Yes. And, and, and these stories about visiting the submarines in Avalon Bay would seem to be an indication of just that endless connection definitely from your book and from what we've discussed today i i just have to believe that townsend brown was involved in way way more than than what we understand at this point in time i just i just want to read this um something you have on the last page of your book and i felt it was just a beautiful sentiment about townsend brown so i'm just going to read it now uh, Thomas Townsend Brown was laid to rest at the Avalon Cemetery on Catalina Island in the shade of a eucalyptus tree. And I just think that is such a, a perfect ending to his life. Yeah, and it's actually a perfect ending to this conversation. Because remember at the very beginning, we were talking about the dates on a tombstone yes. and the little dash yeah. between them? That's where the little dash is, That's right, right there on Catalina Island. That's right. Before we wrap this up, I just want to mention I'm going to put a link to Paul's website in the show notes and also where you can purchase his books, The Boy Who Invented Television and The Man Who Mastered Gravity. Paul, thank you very much for being on the show today. I have, it's so fascinating. I I think I could talk to you for another several hours, but I just highly recommend that 
people get this book because there is just so like we have just literally scratched the surface of what is in your book. It's it's yeah, very we've compelling. scratched we've scratched the surface of a surface that just scratches the surface. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for being on the show again. I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the conversation too very much. And now, the UFO Talker podcast brings you an audio excerpt from the book The Man Who Mastered Gravity, A Twisted Tale of Space, Time, and the Mysteries in Between by Paul Shatskin. Used by permission from the author. Read by Joy Ryan. Originally published by Incorrigible Arts 2023. Book Synopsis. The Man Who Mastered Gravity is about little-known scientist Thomas Townsend Brown, whose unorthodox ideas about electricity and gravity have made him the subject of decades of speculation and intrigue. Shatskin's book is a cloak-and-dagger story of science and espionage, hidden technologies, forbidden romance, and a secret society, all woven through pivotal events in the middle of the 20th century. Chapter 14. We Will Just Sail Away Josephine Beale was a pretty, slender girl with soft, dark blonde hair, an enthusiastic smile, and blue-gray eyes, a junior at Lash High School in Zanesville. She had seen Townsend Brown around town, heard people refer to him as the second coming of Einstein, and knew that he was the heir to one of the town's more prominent families. Josephine caught Townsend's eye while performing in a school play. She didn't know what to make of it when her gossipy girlfriends mentioned that Townsend Brown had been asking about her. Josephine heard all kinds of stories, that he owned his own cruiser out on Buckeye Lake, a refitted pilot boat called the Viking. His devilishly handsome friend Paul Gray had a reputation with the girls. Josephine's girlfriends giggled whenever they mentioned Paul Gray and Townsend Brown. Now the gossip mill was starting to grind on Josephine Beale, who did all she could to feign disinterest. As the Beale family gathered for dinner one night, Josephine's father, Clifford Beale, a prosperous businessman with an avocation in woodcraft, mentioned an inquiry he'd heard that day about a carpentry project. I had an interesting visitor today, Dr. Beale started. That young man Townsend Brown came to ask what I would charge to build a curio cabinet for his mother's birthday. Dr. Beale watched his daughter hold her breath. He asked about you, Dr. Beale said. Well, more precisely, he asked my permission to call on you. Papa, are you serious? He came here? Oh, Papa, you don't know what everyone is saying about him. I can't believe that he would have the nerve to come straight to you like this. Dr. Beale delighted in his daughter's reaction. Don't be so quick to believe what others say, he said. This fellow made quite an effort to ask my permission in the most proper way. He stressed that you could select a chaperone if you wanted to, but I don't think that will be necessary. Josephine and Townsend's first date was a picnic on the shore of Buckeye Lake in the spring of 1927. In a fitting prelude to their future together, Townsend showed up late, having found it difficult to pull himself away from his laboratory. J. 
Josephine acted indifferent when he finally arrived in the Brown family's chauffeur-driven Packard. Their second date was more memorable. It began with Townsend showing Josephine around his private laboratory, which she found impressive even if she understood little of what he was showing her. After another chauffeured drive out to Buckeye Lake, he took her sailing in his gaff-rigged catboat, the aptly named Tomcat. Josephine tried to tease him about the name, but Townsend just laughed and swore that was the name of the boat when he'd bought it. It was a perfect day for sailing, warm and clear with a light zephyr chasing over the surface of the lake. She was new to sailing, but took naturally to the trim wooden boat. Townsend showed her the ropes and even gave her a turn at the tiller. See that area over there, the ripples on the water, Townsend said. There's more wind over there. Try to steer toward it. And when she did, the little boat picked up the fresh breeze and accelerated over the surface. The visit to the lab and the adventure on the lake gave Josephine a better sense of her suitor. We talked about everything that day, Josephine later told Linda. I kept watching him and noticing how wonderful and blue his eyes were. He was very handsome and so tanned, and when he smiled at me, I just lit up inside. My previous impressions of him just melted away that day. Tacking toward the far shore of the lake, Townsend told Josephine about dreams he'd been having and the ideas that came to him in his sleep that inspired him to experiment in his laboratory. He didn't have anyone who would just listen to him, so that was my role from the first, Josephine told Linda. I didn't understand half of what he was trying to explain to me. It took a couple of weeks before it began to sink in. I just knew that it was the most important information that I probably would ever hear, and here was a man who was going to need me. As the little sailboat skimmed across the lake, Josephine tried to lighten the mood. Okay, Mr. Smarty, if you could travel through time, what do you think you will find in the future? Will there be more wars? What will become of mankind in the future? The young dreamer with the tiller in one hand and the main sheet in the other knew it was time to share the vision he had seen in his dreams. We will just sail away, he said. What do you mean? Someday men will travel in space just as easily as we are sailing now. Great ships will silently push away from the earth just as easily as this sailboat pushed away from the dock. Josephine lingered in silence, listening to the water lapping against the hull. She closed her eyes and tried to imagine their little boat sailing across the void of space. In her heart, she knew she was hearing something not only strange and fantastic, but also true. She opened her eyes and smiled. Mr. Brown, you are different, aren't you? Townsend smiled back. That was pretty much it for me, Josephine recalled. I was a gone goose. When they got back to the yacht club, Townsend took Josephine home and left her on the doorstep without so much as a kiss on her cheek. That night I couldn't sleep, Josephine recounted, so I knew what I was going through. Yes, Linda thought to herself as she listened to her mother that morning as the sun rose over Ashlon. In her tangled feelings for Morgan, Linda knew exactly what her mother was talking about. This is the end of today's excerpt. Here are the Canadian Civil Aviation Anomalies for the week of February 12th through February 16th, 2024. On February 12th, 
the dispatcher called London Flight Information Centre and indicated that one of their aircraft, a Sioux College of Applied Arts and Technology Zlin Z242L, flying from Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, had conducted a forced landing on a road north of Sault Ste. Marie. Flight plan closed and Toronto Area Control Centre shift manager advised. Reported on February 13th, the pilot of a Helijet International Sikorsky S-76C flying from Vancouver, British Columbia to Vancouver Harbour, British Columbia reported laser illumination of the cockpit while on flight approach to CBC-7. The pilot was momentarily blinded and handed controls to the co-pilot. The aircraft abandoned their approach, orbited and then completed their landing at CBC-7. On February 15th, the Joint Rescue Coordination Centre, Trenton, was notified of an emergency locator transmitter at 2223Z. A subsequent search indicated a Quantum Helicopter's Bell 206L crashed under unknown circumstances approximately four nautical miles east-southeast of Fort Chippewyan, Alberta. There was an impact on two of the operations. All other flights proceeded to their destinations without further incident. Well, that's our podcast for this week. So please share, follow, subscribe, and do all those good things to help spread the word about UFO Talker. And until next time, this is Michael Ryan. Keep watching the skies. You have been listening to the UFO Talker. If you have any questions or comments on this episode, you can email us at ufotalker at bell.net or visit our website at ufotalker.ca. You can support UFO Talker by using the Buy Me a Coffee app with links on our website and in the show notes. We appreciate every listener. Thank you for your support. This has been a Michael Ryan production. 30, that's a wrap.